Good morning. Trying to get us back on schedule, so I'm going to get started now. My name is Joe Kwong. I direct the Economic Opportunity Program at the Philanthropy Roundtable. The Roundtable is working to build and strengthen the network of donors who support private alternatives to the welfare state. Through the course of my work, I spend my time looking at the ideas, the models, the strategies, the nonprofits that are effectively moving low-income Americans into economic independence and earned success. Now, freedom is the lens through which I look at the poverty challenge. For each strategy that I look at, I have to ask myself, does this promote individual freedom? To me, if it helps someone move off of welfare, off of food stamps, out of public housing, out of bad neighborhoods, it's promoting freedom. How are we building an individual's capacity to earn and make the choices that they want about where to live, where to work, what to feed their families? Freedom, as John Allison mentioned earlier today, enables you to be who you, wa who you want to be. It's an important topic. Freedom matters. And in the poverty space, it matters regardless of who you are, what you have done, or where you've come from. So first, a few framing observations quickly. The first, as very much pointed out by the panel before me, we're not getting a lot for our money. Just to recap, in the 50 years of the war on poverty, we spent about $22 trillion in the past year, $932 billion on about 84 or so anti-poverty measures, and yet the poverty measures are not nudging significantly. The second is a point that Angela made very, very aptly, and that is that poverty is complex. If this is an issue that you really care about, um, I would encourage you to look at um, an American Express docu-ad. And if you just Google that, you'll see that. Because one of the things that matters to me is that idea that this isn't a them against us kind of issue. Poverty can strike almost anyone anywhere. And the American Express docu-ad does a great job of showing how people that you work with that you may not know what's going on behind them. And I have to ask myself, if I were to land in poverty through, I don't know, an awful medical diagnosis or something like that, how would I want to be treated? And that's part of the lens that I think about as well as I, I do my work. The third is government treats poverty as a material issue. And that is really, to me, a problem. It's very much a human problem. And let, let, let me just give a little bit of, a, a little example about the challenge that we have and something that I think shows the human dimension. I was visiting with a, a bunch of uh, high school dropouts who had gotten engaged in a program. And it was a program that was helping them learn the work skills and now they were all comfortably in internships. And the question was asked, how many of you were told that you would never amount to anything in your life? And in this group of 20 kids, every hand went up. That's not the amazing part. The amazing part was then when you bring it down. How many of you were told that by your teachers? You got a whole bunch of hands. How many were told by your guidance counselor? More hands. How many were told by your parents? Essentially, that covered the range from these, for these kids. And I mean, the very people who really should be the ones that are teaching the skills, your biggest advocates, that's what we hear all the time, were the ones saying, you will never amount to anything. I think that that encapsulates a big part of the human challenge. 
And, and I'm a full-on free market libertarian, and I like to think that markets will take care of everything, but when you think about standing in the shoes of that kid, where do they go from there? That is why I believe that it's really important for us to look at private alternatives to the welfare state. How do we really help people appreciate their self-worth, something that each one of these kids needed to learn, and then how do we help them explore and achieve their greater potential? To me, that really is a whole bunch of what we need to be looking at, and it's not so much about making sure that you've got, you've got food and shelter, absolutely important, but we need to flip that list and really help people figure out how they can become prosperous. So that is what I'd like to be exploring with our panel today. And um, you may see that I, I reorganized the speaking order at the last second because I'd like to use the expertise of our panelists to maybe create a narrative about how to think about the poverty challenge. And I'm absolutely delighted to moderate this because many long-term colleagues are speaking here. And the first is Professor Dave Beto, who I've, since, I've known since the 1980s. And, um, he is an expert in many things. He's a professor of history at the University of Alabama, but the one that I most appreciate is his expertise in mutual aid societies. Now, I'm sure some of the younger folks here have no idea what that even is, but the reason I wanted to start with, with Professor Beto is a lot of people would just have a hard time imagining answering the question, what would our world look like without food stamps, when in fact, it's a relatively new phenomena maybe 60 years old, 50 with since the war on poverty. But that's what Professor Beto can talk to us about. How, before government and title expansions, did people create mechanisms for security and, of all sorts? How, essentially, did, civil, did they flourish in civil society? And then I'm going to ask Harriet McDonald to speak secondly, who is the executive vice president of the Doe Fund. The reason I want Harriet to follow up is I'm hoping that she really will pound home the primacy of work, something that we heard about earlier. Work indeed is the biggest anti-poverty program. And if you missed it earlier, um, of those who live below the poverty line, when you look at those who are working full-time, that's less than 4.5% of people living in poverty. Work is a central organizing force for our lives, and it is vastly important. And Harriet not only helps people become employable, but she works with the hardest, the homeless, to help them become employable, find jobs, and keep jobs. And then um, Ruth Rathblot will speak she is the president of the Harlem Educational Activities Fund. And as I said earlier, to me, the challenge really can be encapsulated in, in how do you help people explore and find their greater potential. And there's probably no better way to do that than through education. And she will talk about the work that they are doing to expand educational opportunities for low-income students. Lastly, my other very long-term colleague, Bob Woodson, who is the founder of the Center for Neighborhood Enterprises, will talk about his work, and I want to emphasize two words in his, his organization, neighborhood and enterprises. Bob has been a champion in bringing free market principles to apply to the social economy. He's also championed the idea of neighborhoods, that we really have to have a lot of efforts coming from the grassroots. I mean, it's people helping people is the way that we are going to uh, make strides on, on the poverty challenge. So with that, I'd like to now turn this over to Professor Beto, and then we'll come back for Q&A afterwards. Thank you.
It's always a pleasure to see Joe again every 10 years, maybe, uh, at, at periodic conferences we see each other. Um, I am going to be talking about a, uh, a world without a welfare state. And so I'm going back a little further than some people. Some people are sort of giving charts starting in 1967. I want to go back a lot farther than that. I want to go back before the New Deal, back to the early uh, 20th century, because you have, a, I guess, an experiment of sorts. You, you have a world without a welfare state, or a United States without a welfare state. And I'll go into some detail about that in, in a minute. Um, how were people able to get by? You know, poverty rates, we don't even know what the poverty rate was, but some estimates maybe you know, 40%, something like that. But yet we also see uh, tremendous examples of upward mobility. We know a lot of the new immigrants that came over, many of them settled near here in the Lower East Side, uh, that they were able to, to move up the ladder pretty quickly, the housing ladder, the occupational ladder. We know that a lot of these Eastern European immigrants are more likely than native-born people by the 1920s, if not earlier, to own their own homes. So how are they able to pull this off? Well, a lot of this doesn't have much to do with welfare per se, and that's why Professor McWhorter Werner's point is a good one, that there, there, there are regulatory factors that are going on here. I guess you could say no war on drugs, exactly. But if you look at the lives of the poor at the turn of the century, there are a lot more opportunities, say if you're near here on the Lower East Side, to make a living. About a third of family income, for example, comes from various forms of homework, people working in the home. Um, 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 there are a lot of opportunities to earn extra money. There is also a lot of ways to, you can save on your housing costs by doubling up and tripling up. If you look at some of the old pictures, say, of Hester Street, there's a lot of people. There's a lot of crowding, and people do this. They do it temporarily, and a lot of the reformers at the time said, isn't this terrible? Everyone's all crammed together. But if they took a moving picture approach rather than a snapshot approach, they would say, well, 10 years after that, a lot of those people that are crammed into one room are owning their own homes because there were a lot of rungs on the housing ladder. So a lot of the legacy of the progressive era is the regulatory state, which uh, in many cases restricted through zoning, building codes, and other things, that ability for people to double up and triple up restricted or banned the ability of people to earn a living through homework and through as peddlers and that sort of thing. So that component is a key reason why the poor were able to survive and why we see tremendous upward mobility in a world without a welfare state. But I'm going to be talking about transfer programs. So what, what was out there? Right? We don't have really a welfare state in the modern sense. You do have some governmental role. And there have been people like Mike Consul, who's a very nice guy, who said, well, the government has always been involved and so forth. Well, yes. But let's put this in some perspective about governmental involvement. Uh, the government's spending as a percentage of gross domestic product in 1910 was about 7% of GDP. That's federal state and local, right? Some of that is welfare spending, but very little of it actually is. 
And it's just a drop in the bucket, especially when you consider the very high poverty rates at the time. So you want to call that a welfare state, you know, I wouldn't really do it. And if you look at other measures, for example, the leading, one of the leading welfare, kinds of welfare programs take the form of hierarchical relief, indoor relief, if it's a government program, where you have to go in an almshouse or a poorhouse to get aid. We're talking about a fraction of 1% of the population at any one time is in an almshouse. Uh, or, uh, uh, and, and that is actually declining from the 1880s to the 1920s, despite very high poverty rates. If you want to look at organized private charity, also very few people getting organized private charity, groups like, um, oh, later they were, you know, the United Way, the ancestors of the United Way. Very few people getting organized top-down charity, which I would call hierarchical relief, meaning the, the people that get the money and the people that give the money come from very different backgrounds, right? Um, you know, people who give the money tend to be wealthier, middle class, et cetera. People get it, you know, there's no real relationship there, very little relationship. That is trivial, whether it's private or governmental. So people are falling between the cracks. Things, things happen, so how do they get by? Um, if it's not through those two methods, and that's why these endless debates about whether government is playing more of a role than the private sector in hierarchical relief are sort of beside the point to some extent, because the numbers involved for either are just extremely small. Well, they are doing it through uh, various kinds of reciprocal relief, and the most, uh, meaning side to side, right? The most sort of organized form of reciprocal relief would be uh, voluntary associations for mutual improvement. And uh, Tocqueville discussed this early, in the early 19th century, where he said Americans sort of had this propensity to form associations. Whenever they have a problem, they form an association. They don't just sit there, they just do it. And certainly, we see this. Americans of all ages, all conditions, and all dispositions constantly form associations. People said at the time, early 20th century, that Americans were a nation of joiners. And that is very much the case. There are a lot of voluntary organizations. And these are usually take the form of reciprocal, meaning you pay in dues and you get benefits, right? Uh, you're, you're giving but you're also receiving, and you're sort of on somewhat of an equal plane, right? Now, um, various kinds of a reciprocal relief out there. And, 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 and historians have very little sense of how important it is. Individual giving, right? Just, just giving money, raising money for people, helping out people, taking collections, tremendously important. We don't have any idea of how important, but, but probably vast compared to forms of hierarchical relief. We've got church congregations are giving help to their members. Again, we don't know how much, right? You know, a barn burns down and the minister says, let's all go out and help rebuild it, or let's take in some orphans, right? Vast, but we don't have much of a sense about how much, but we... People at the time recognized it was vast, including professional social workers who would say, look, what we're doing is a drop in the bucket compared to what the poor themselves are doing. And then, finally, the groups that I've looked at called fraternal societies, mutual aid organizations, um, um, that are, are high, high, uh, groups based on principles of 
uh, more reciprocal relief. Now, our image of fraternal societies isn't of, of these groups as, as being social welfare organizations. In the popular culture, our image is groups like the loyal order of the water buffalo, of the Flintstones, right, where Fred and Barney trying to get away from their wives and act silly, right? Uh, or, you know, more recently, uh, the Simpsons, right, where they've got a fraternal society called, what is it, the Stonecutters or something where, you know, I guess it does sort of have a social welfare role there. They, he, you know, Homer finds a tunnel that he can, you know, get home faster, you know, drive through. Um, so that's the stereotype that a lot of us have, but if you were to look at the turn of the century, the main draw of these organizations, without it, really, they're, they're going to wither away to a great extent, is they are mutual aid social welfare organizations. Uh, these are organizations that are decentralized, organized around a lodge system. Sometimes you might have thousands of lodges. They are member controlled, right? The members elect the leaders of the organization, set the standards. Um, the, the leaders are elected from the ranks of the members. They are ritual based, and certainly we are aware of that, secret handshakes. Uh, 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 passwords, uh, and so forth, that often are, are, are part of a function to prevent insurance fraud to some extent. And then they are also social welfare organizations. And this takes the form of a cooperative kind of social welfare. You pay in dues and you get benefits. The kinds of benefits these groups offer would be death benefits, basically life insurance, um, they would also offer early form of health insurance, cash sick benefits, where if you're sick, you can get money from the lodge, and they'll send a visiting committee to make sure you're sick. And uh, you can get it uh, um, um, dispensed by your lodge. Um, and then finally, form of medical care was lodge practice. And this is where the lodges would hire doctors to provide basic medical care, including minor surgery. Uh, this cost typically $2 annually, uh, which would be, in today's dollars, about $47 a year. Basic kind of health care, including um, house calls. Um, um, this is very common um, uh, in, 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 in American cities, but also you find it among African Americans in places like uh, New Orleans, which had a big tradition of this kind of aid. It gets a little bit more formalized over time. Uh, some of the fraternal societies are trying to tackle the AIDS writ large of the period, and that was tuberculosis by building tuberculosis sanitariums, where if you were a member, you could get, uh, uh, you could get uh, aid. You could stay at a sanitarium. Now, you also have experimentations in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s in building hospitals fraternal hospitals. And the one I focused on the most was a group run by an organization in the Mississippi Delta, one of the poorest places in the country, run by the Knights and Daughters of Tabor. And they built a hospital, raised the money brick by brick in the 1930s. It opened in the 1940s. No government aid at all. And in the late 1940s, they are charging $7.50 a year in membership dues, which, we, which uh, entitles a member to 30 days of hospital care, including major and minor surgery. That would be, in today's dollars, 
70, about $73. And we can talk about maybe some of the ways that they're able to keep those prices down. Um, this is a picture of patients waiting to see doctors at the Taborian Hospital. It's a picture of the hospital. It's one of the leading hospitals for blacks in Mississippi at the time, Mississippi, Mississippi Delta, where most blacks lived. Okay. Um, well, um, I, 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 I'm not sure how well I'm doing, but let me, let me sort of finish up and we can talk about some other things. Now, what have we seen since the rise of the welfare state? We have seen um, a diminution of these kinds of organizations, these kinds of relationships. Uh, what Edmund Burke called the little platoons. Burke had argued that the strength of a society, that it fell or rose on the strength of its little platoons. And certainly the fraternal societies are examples of that. And here we see an example of the increase in spending over time. Uh, this is federal, state, and local welfare spending, 1929 to 2000. But we have had uh, tremendous growth uh, in, the, in the spending by any standard. And again, if we look at the turn of the century, it's really trivial by modern standards. Uh, we also have the rise of the regulatory state, which I think is tremendously important. I would certainly agree that the war on drugs, which I guess you could say is part of a regulatory state, isn't it? has been tremendously destructive. But there's been a lot of other things that have been going on, including regulation of these experiments, such as lodge practice. The medical societies, in combination with certification agencies, really wage war on lodge practice in the early 20th century. And we can talk about that. Certainly, there's been discriminatory tax policy that we've seen really even beginning before the 1940s, but certainly accelerating during World War II, where we had a tax benefit if insurance is provided through the employer. And so we have a sense where the individual, since the turn of the century, is increasingly tied to the state or increasingly tied to, to private companies, and this third sector does not benefit from these kinds of um, uh, these kinds of subsidies. So we have had, a, for all these thing, reasons, I, we've had a diminution of this. Now, could we recreate fraternal societies? Well, I don't know if that's feasible. Things have changed culturally. But one lesson I take from this is that people are tremendously resourceful. When blacks came out of slavery, they start forming mutual aid organizations even though they have no previous history of doing that, for example. And I don't think the poor today are any less resourceful. So I think we underestimate, to some extent, how resourceful people are. And I would just sort of leave it at that, I guess. All right. Thank you. Good late morning. I'm Harriet Carr McDonald. Um, I'm the executive vice president of the Doe Fund. Um, many of you who live in New York have probably seen the men in blue that clean the streets of this entire city. Joe, thank you for moderating today. Almost 30 years ago, my husband George and I decided to solve a problem. Thousands and thousands of homeless people had appeared in 
transportation terminals, on our streets, and in our subways. We're Americans, and we're patriots, and we're family people. We came from careers in business, not social work. And we were convinced that homelessness could be solved. We believed in then, as we do now, that work is the solution to poverty. To us, it wasn't the homeless people or the people returning from prison that were the problem. It was the way we, as a nation, saw them. My husband and I spent months and months in Grand Central Terminal getting to know homeless people personally. My husband fed those people for 700 nights in a row, and he never missed a night, I can tell you that. What the people told us again and again, the people on the floor of Grand Central Terminal, that what they wanted was a room and a job to pay for it. And we believed them. Since then, as an organization, we have generated three quarters of a billion dollars in revenue. The formerly homeless men that we serve have put $250 million into their pockets from the hard work that they do. Our program has been replicated in Philadelphia, Boulder, Colorado, Atlanta, Georgia, and Washington, D.C. We have personally served over 21,000 individual human beings. Some of the revenue-generating work we do is cleaning the streets. We clean 170 miles of New York streets 365 days a year, rain or shine. We keep New York cleaner and greener and safer than it has ever been before. But years ago, when my husband George and I started, and we went to the city, and we said we wanted to put homeless people to work in a business, they almost laughed us out of the office. We heard the same thing over and over again, that it was impossible, that the people were either, either too lazy or too crazy to work. The activists all said that the answer to homelessness and poverty was housing, housing, housing. Free, of course, except to us, the taxpayers. They still are saying that today, 30 years later. We knew the answer was work. It's what America is built on. And we knew that underneath the desperation the homelessness, the living behind bars, and the drug addiction were people, human beings. 70% of the people that we serve have been incarcerated for an average of eight years each. And 80% have used drugs for an average of 17 years. Half never graduated from high school, and one in five doesn't read at or below the fifth grade level. 
almost none of them have histories of work, and all of them come from single-parent homes and the child foster care system. They begin immediately to go to work in our program, and they begin paying their child support out of what they earn. We insist upon it. After nine months with us, doing hard work, job training, skills training, and taking on personal responsibility, they graduate. They graduate drug-free. They graduate living in their own self-supported housing. They have private sector jobs, and they're supporting their children. Most importantly, what they really achieve is something no welfare check can ever, ever give you. And that's personal dignity. And it's full self-sufficiency. They become taxpayers. They contribute to society. And they are totally, 100% free of the welfare system. Which brings us to why we're all here today. What about the welfare system? What about the safety net? Why are working age people the one group whose poverty hasn't really changed in 50 years? With a safety net in place, why does a program like ours even have to exist? The answer is, because subsidies don't work. People work. Work works. When Professor Bruce Weston at Harvard studied us, he's one of the foremost experts on recidivism and criminal activity in the nation. The, the outcomes that he found were, in fact, staggering. 60% of the men that we serve do not go back to prison and go to work and stay at work. They don't commit violent crimes, 60% of them, three years after they graduate. Ready, Willing, and Able reduces recidivism. It reduces incarceration. I mean, it makes a dramatic difference in people's lives. A separate study shows that for every single dollar that is invested in Ready, Willing, and Able, the taxpayers save $3.60. You tell me what entitled pro entitlement program has ever done that. The other thing is, from the people, what I hear now for 30 years, over and over again, is that this is the best opportunity they've ever had in their whole lives. Think about that. Living in a shelter, cleaning the streets every day, is the best opportunity they've ever had. You know, the first time I heard that, I cried. 
Now, what about the safety net? That Americans were promised 50 years ago. It seems to me that it's a net that's very different. One that tangles people up until there's no escape. A net that squeezes people into dependency and guarantees the same for their children. Instead of lifting people up, it traps them right where they are, an inch above the poverty level. From that place, it seems to me there is no way to grab the first rung of the economic ladder. It's just too far away. That's why in, we take people off all benefits the minute they come to us. They go to work. Instead, we replace the safety net with what we call the safety ladder. It's steps a person can climb and close the gap between poverty and climb the economic ladder. Sadly, over the last three or four years, the people in our program have gotten younger. 18 to 24-year-olds have now doubled in the number of people in our programs. These young men are the living, breathing echoes of the homeless crisis, of the crack epidemic, of, of the disintegration of the family unit and the terrible, terrible failure of our educational system. Poverty, incarceration, drug use, welfare dependency, and racial strife are all different parts of the same issue. There are cycles that have inflicted generation after generation and have been handed down from parent to child, to child. And for the people from the inside, they seem unbreakable and inescapable. But of course, we know they're not. Once person, a person takes an opportunity and lets go of the net that has tangled them up and starts to climb the economic ladder, the world looks totally different. For our 30th year now, we created a video about the power of work and opportunity. You'll hear firsthand from the very young men who have grabbed onto that safety ladder, and it's what it's meant for them. If I didn't make the choice to come to the Doe Fund to change my life, I wouldn't be holding my son. I'd be dead or in jail for the rest of my life because the path I was on wasn't good. It was a road to destruction. If the Doe Fund didn't exist, I'd probably be dead or back in the penitentiary. If the Doe Fund wasn't here, God knows where I would be. 11 months ago, I was sitting in a prison cell at the end of 20 years, wondering what I was gonna do. A lot of guys like me inside, wonder what's the next chapter in life. What are we gonna do when we get out? If there is an opportunity, where are we gonna go? I mean, 
20 years. Anything I ever had or loved was gone. By and large, it's been, uh, in my judgment and experience, a lack of opportunity that people have had, and not any character flaw or defect of their own. Uh, we're all human beings, and we all make mistakes, and we hopefully learn from those mistakes. Our folks, when they make a mistake at 13 or 14 years old, have to live with that mistake, branded with that mistake for their whole lives, and they don't have an opportunity. And I think that that's the subject that we need to address. Their character is just fine. Typical day of my life before the Dauphin, not really organized, no goals, no motivation. My life before the Dauphin, I was down and out, waking up in the morning, going to grab a firearm. When we started Ready, Willing, and Able 30 years ago, everyone told us that the people were too lazy or too crazy to work. The thing was that we actually knew the people. They were human beings who wanted to have opportunity and go to work. And everything that we believed about people and the best in humanity is true. For me to be put in like this kind of environment to do the right thing and somebody to trust me, it was like, ooh. I ain't never had that feeling before. The root of the idea is still the same, and it still works. And it's something that's been proven here, it's been proven in Philadelphia, it's been proven in Washington, D.C., all across the country. And the fact that if you give someone a chance to work, if you give someone a job, they're going to take full advantage of that opportunity, and they're going to really achieve long-lasting results and stay out of prison systems and stay out of the homeless shelters. I shoveled steps. I shoveled walkways. I made paths for the people of New York City to enjoy the Hudson River Park. And it's not just picking up garbage. I did so much damage to this city that it's ironic that now I'm cleaning it up. And it feels good. When I got to the Dauphin, I saw an opportunity. If I want to change, I got to do it now. The Dauphin shifts that whole perception because they provide uh, an environment where everyone is positive. Everyone is looking to better themselves. It took time for me to learn how to appreciate what is it that I'm doing. I'm actually doing something not only for myself, but for the community at large. You know, you keep the streets clean. You know, you, you, you give direction to tourists, to people. And like, number one, it's a sense of security, having the men in blue around. And I'm like, wow, like it really opened my eyes to what I represent. And at first, a lot of people see it like, oh, I'm just cleaning the street, but it's bigger than that. We cannot afford to lose another generation of children to incarceration. And that's what we're doing if we don't provide opportunity for the fathers. So now I'm in this position where I'm changing my life and my son is getting older. It makes me feel good where I could grab him like, come on Kyrie, let's go to the park or let's go get something to eat. I wouldn't give it away for the world. Like, I, I love that feeling, I love it. It's good, it's great. Spending time with my son is everything. It's, it's my happiness. It's my peace of mind. It's my clarity. It's my truth. It's me. We love people. We want to help people. We do it very well. We can do it better tomorrow than we've done it today. We can help more people next week than we did last. I have dreams now. They're brought back to life now just because I'm a part of the Dauphin. It's going to be amazing. This uniform is a beacon of light. When my son grows older, I hope he says that dad is my hero. That's all I want, and I love my son.
Thank you. You know, I've he heard of course, yeah, I'll be real quick. Um, of course, what moves me most about this is seeing fathers reunited with children. It gives me hope for the future. And there is hope because human beings are all the same inside. We can stop this cycle from afflicting yet another generation of young people. We can end poverty, we can reduce recidivism and dependency. Ready, willing, is, ready, willing and able does that. An entire family goes from just surviving on benefits to genuinely thriving. It's the end of the cycle. Now zoom out from one family in our city to other families, and then go even further to the whole country. Imagine a program like ours in every city in America. More can people contributing, better educated, a more productive workforce, most importantly, for a social security system on the brink of bankruptcy, we can take and create a sustainable system with more makers than takers and preserve it for the people that need it. The very poor. Thank you. Give me one more minute. All right, well, I just wanted to. Okay. okay, sorry. 30 seconds, right? Yes. Okay. We, we're launching a campaign for opportunity over the next three years. And what we will achieve with the $20 million we're going to raise is we're going to double the number of people we serve every day from 1,000 to 2,000. And we're going to teach other providers all across this country how to put people to work and give them an opportunity to live free of welfare. Thank you. That is a hard act to follow, and a video on top of it. Thank you, Harriet. Um, to the Cato Institute and to Columbia University, thank you so much for inviting me here today and to join this prestigious panel, and for the opportunity to share some of my insights rega regarding the private alternatives to welfare. I should be an expert. I have spent the last 20 years at organizations that are, in fact, private alternatives to government welfare. I spent the first 15 years of my life at Big Brothers Big Sisters as a social worker, and the past two years as the president and CEO of the Harlem Educational Activities, not the Harlem Children's Zone, the Harlem Educational Activities Fund. But let me frame my thoughts into two areas. What I've seen work, and should government be doing what I've been doing? First, in order to know if something worked, you have to know what you're trying to accomplish. I have spent my career working with at-risk children. And what were they at risk of? Is it poverty? 
Because poverty means not necessarily having enough money to buy necessities and not having the ability to save. I could have solved that by handing out $100 bills of mine or hopefully someone else's. No, the kids whom I've intervened with were at risk of the results of poverty. Despair, family breakdown, dropping out of school, hunger, crime, teen pregnancy, drug dependency, trafficking, the list goes on. And when I think about it, I actually misspoke. These are not the results of poverty, they're the causes of poverty. And then I think about it again, and actually I misspoke again. This is a collection of ills where it really becomes a vicious cycle, because where did it start? My students have been at risk of that entire cycle. I don't know where the cycle starts, but I've been doing my part to end it. I began my career in 1995 as a newly minted MSW at Big Brothers Big Sisters. Big Brothers Big Sisters is all about volunteerism. People volunteer to mentor students. I was fortunate to have been part of the beginning of a workplace mentoring program model where volunteers from corporations around the city mentored students. New York City corporations and banks gave us the funding to provide their employees an opportunity to engage. We literally brought students into the world of work and had them mentored by corporate volunteers, not only to help volunteers in terms of employees, in terms of what they wanted to give back and engage, but really secretly so that students could see a world beyond their 10 block radius, opening doors of career possibilities. Many of the students that I worked with over the years often told me when I said, what do you want to be when you get older? They would say, I want to be an American Idol, I want to be an NFL star or a veterinarian. Well, the reality check on the first two is not so good. So I wanted to provide them opportunities to see a different world. What did office spaces look like? Meeting professionals who could help them think about their careers and their career paths and really emphasize education. These were typically kids who were not going to take your daughters or sons to work day. They lacked basic career exposure and planning. These corporate volunteers, though, were ordinary people with decent jobs and families, people who were living proof of a way of life different from the neighborhoods where many of my students came from. Students got the message that a career track was possible. These students saw that the American system worked, even for people who looked a lot like them. And I can tell you about two cases in particular. Uh, the programs typically started with students in middle school. So there was a student, Housey. He came from Sunset Park, Brooklyn. He entered the program in seventh grade, a bright kid, not sure about his future, and I matched him with a volunteer from the Bank of America, Bank of New York, sorry. Uh, and the volunteer and the student got along. They had workplace etiquette skills. They had cultural diversity discussions. They had how to write a resume, how to interview. And then we noticed that Housey started to drop out of the program. He started to miss a lot of the sessions. And when the volunteer, the big brother, and I talked to him, he said, well, I've been spending my days working in the sweatshop with my mom pulling threads. So for every thousand threads that I pull, I get a dollar. And my mom needs that money. And we said to him, well, what if, you're now entering eighth grade, this was his second year, what if in high school we were able to get you, secure you an internship? No promises that we could do it, but what if we were able to? What if we prepared you for that interview and that, that path? 
And he said, yeah, I, I might be up for that. And we said it would be a lot more than the dollar for every thousand strands of string that you pull from those shirts. And that sounded good to him. So he interviewed for the job. He got the job. And I can tell you that 25 years later, or 20 years later, 25 years later, he's still working at the Bank of New York. He went to college, and he is still working at the Bank of New York. I also know Delphina. Delphina similarly entered in seventh grade. And she joined the program not for the educational purpose or the career exposure, but so that she could get out of school at 2.30 and not 3 o'clock. Delphina was a, a good kid. She was Puerto Rican, and she was the first in her family to even think about finishing high school. She was one of five siblings. She did, I matched her with a great volunteer from Bear Stearns, and she was able to stay with that volunteer through her entire high school career, then her college career, and her volunteer helped her. She is now an accountant at one of the big accounting firms in New York City. So I know that career exposure and education for those students were a path out of the vicious cycle of poverty. I spent 15 and a half years with Big Brothers Big Sisters creating and developing that program, and it was truly a world outside the student's 10 block radius. I now bring that same passion for youth and exposure to new ideas and new worlds to the Harlem Educational Activities Fund, or as we call it for short, HEAF. HEAF was founded 25 years ago by a truly passionate philanthropist and real estate developer, Dan Rose. He started it at PS76 on 123rd Street here in Harlem because he saw a great need in the community. He started to read the New York Times, like many of us do on Sundays, and 25 years ago, they published a reading report about the worst performing schools. So Dan had in his mind, could I go up and change reading scores for that school if I brought in enough resources? And the fact was, he could, and he did in two years. But that wasn't enough, because just getting kids to read doesn't help them think about their future and think about how to complete high school and go on to college. And so HEAF, since that time, has evolved into so much more. HEAF is an after-school program that runs six days a week and focuses on college acceptance and college graduation. We supplement what students may be missing from their public school experience through rigorous academics, electives, and social-emotional learning. We serve 500 students a year. And there are three things that make our program different than many of the programs that you've heard about, even just in New York City. We work with students from middle school through college graduation. So we start young. We start with them in sixth grade, and we work with them all the way till they're finished college and even beyond. We focus on the, t the forgotten middle student. We're not focused on the top student who's doing well. We have a number of programs that support those students. And we're not focused on the remedial students who are also getting some attention. We are literally focused on the forgotten middle student, the one who's afraid to raise their hand in school because they don't want to seem smart, the one who is often not picked by their teachers to do certain projects. The student who, though, still has a bright light in their eyes that education seems like it could be a cool thing, but they don't want to necessarily show it. And we focus on low-income students as well, and first-generation students. We also build in a whole youth development component to help students with the transitions of where they may get lost. We know that if students in our middle school program, and we're 
gaining and garnering them to be ready for the high school application process, which in New York City is one intense process, we make sure that they're competing and they're ready to compete. We also make sure that that transition when they're leaving their zone of high school, it, leaving their zone of middle school to go to high school, is they're ready and they're, they're thinking about leave it, how they leave their neighborhood. Also, when they go to college and could get lost because they may be the first in their family to do so or to leave New York City, we're making sure we've prepared them for those transitions. At HEAF, we've created a learning opportunity conducive to academic success and positive youth development. We are building lifelong learners who have an educational curiosity and future-mindedness. We are so much more than an after-school program. We are truly changing students' perspectives about their future. We are helping kids, much like their middle class and upper middle class counterparts, believe that college is the rule. We set very high expectations. And if you don't believe me, the results are in. HEAF works. We have an unmatched track record of success. 100% of our students graduate high school. 100% of our students enter four-year colleges and 83% of our kids graduate college in six years or less. One third of those go on to get a graduate degree. But we still have big challenges ahead of us. In New York City alone, there are more than one million students in the public school system. And though the graduation rates have risen, 65% of New York City's students are graduating high school, only 37% of African-American and Hispanic young men graduate high school in four years. Less than 30% of those will graduate with Regents diplomas, signifying they are ready for college. And the reality, in the bottom quartile economically, only 8% will graduate college. But believe me, we can turn this around one student at a time. I think the thing that impresses me most about HEAF is that build, uh, building of intellectual curiosity. Whether it's walking into a class where they're utilizing iPads and thinking about research questions, um, and I remember my first week that I was at HEAV and the students were utilizing these iPads, and I said, oh, what question, research question are you thinking about? And one of my students said, oh, I'm trying to create energy, create an app that gives off energy on an iPad. Well, that's beyond where I was imagining that would be. The second student uh, also then told me about a GPS that she wanted to implant because her grandmother was often getting lost, so she wanted to implant a GPS in the walker of one of her students. These are the future thinkers and creators and inventors of our future. We also know that we needed to replicate. So last year we piloted a program in Bedford-Stuyvesant and are working with 25 students. We also realize that we're not alone in this. There are many great programs throughout New York City, and we have combined our efforts in the community and with the community to celebrate our students. At HEAF, we absolutely believe that education is the foundation for building a better life. However, it can't just be about studying for a test. It has to be about building learners who are college and career ready. And that brings me to my final question. Should government have been doing this? The answer, easy answer should be yes, but government couldn't have done what I do or did. Government can hand out those $100 bills that my parents could use, and that might end poverty, but only until the parents start spending the, the money. The kids I've seen need more than money. They need to join the American system, to feel invited in, to be prepared to compete, and to feel their chances of success are realistic. A government check couldn't do that.
a government employee couldn't do that. Volunteerism is what I've seen work, and that's in the private sector. That is very personal work, and it requires someone who is motivated that they are doing it above and beyond their normal life. Youth need access to high-quality education and career exposure. As a privately funded organization, much like a private school, we are able to maintain our uniqueness. We set high levels of accountability. We set high expectations and standards. And we bring in the best and brightest teachers to work with our students. At HEAF, we are part of the American dream. We are providing equal education to all. HEAF truly works. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Um, there is a, uh, a proposition of mine, is, and is, um, God, give me the strength to tell and pursue the truth, especially when it's inconvenient to me. I believe that if we are going to move in a different direction addressing poverty, we have to be willing to, to embrace new and, and forward-thinking solutions. Um, I'm a veteran of the Civil Rights Movement. But I left that movement in the late 60s because I believe that many of those who suffered and sacrificed most did not benefit from the change. That once racial barriers were lowered, they're, they're, in order to walk through the doors of opportunity, it required preparation. And this was not uh, a factor in the civil rights movement. But I also recognize that the poverty programs after the first year was doomed to failure because for the first time in history, government intervened in the economy on behalf of low-income people, and they took massive num amount of money and invested in, in, in professional providers for the poor. So 70% of every dollar that goes to the poor does not go to the poor, it goes to those that serve poor people. And they ask not which problems are solvable, but which ones are fundable this year? So we have created a commodity out of serving poor people and wonder why we continue to have poverty. And so I, and to my social science colleagues, uh, I say perhaps we need to do some cost benefit of social science research over the last 40 years to see what it has produced. Uh, as a measure of whether we ought to be going forward. So our approach is that we must take the principles that work in our market economy and apply them to the social economy. In the market economy, 70% of all jobs are created by entrepreneurs, just even though they're only 3%, because most of the imagination occurs in the smallest units. David Birch's study tells me that entrepreneurs tend to be not A students, but C students. A students come back to universities like this and teach. C students come back and endow. <laughs> because smart people have to have all the answers before they act, and when they act, the opportunity is gone. What there is in this lacking in this debate is a crisis in imagination. 
you realize that 60% of Apple Corporation's income comes from a product that didn't exist six years ago. Because in our market economy, we're willing to listen to a practical source of new knowledge. We look for 70% uh, of our pharmaceuticals, drugs that we use, come from Aborigines. Some Indians who began to eat bark when they had malaria, and the, and the researchers afterwards found out that's where your quinine drug, reserpine, the drug of the, the compound upon which we have uh, sedatives today, came from untutored monks in, 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 in overseas. And so in every other aspect of our life, we look for new knowledge and new information in unusual places, but we're unaffected by the professional credentials of the source of knowledge. Only in our, in our social economy do we have professionals who dominate uh, this discussion. So what we do at the Center for Neighborhood Enterprise, we go around to low-income neighborhoods and we ask questions that are never asked of low-income people, and that is not how many people are in there who are raising children that are dropping out of school in jail and drugs, but what about the 30% who are raising children that are achieving against the odds in these toxic environments? They are the anti-poverty experts. They are the community antibodies, and the challenge then is how do we go in and find them and incentivize them? I can take you into a low-income public housing in, in Washington, D.C. that defies what all the experts have told me, and that is 70% of these mothers are raising children in public housing. The residents there decided to take charge, expel the drug addicts, better manage their own development, and in 10 years they sent 10, I mean 800 children to college. But not a single social scientist came into that project in 10 years to inquire as to how and why they were successful. And so my, 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 my challenge to you in the minutes I got left is what we do in the Center for Neighborhood Enterprise, we have found healing agents, social entrepreneurs that are bound in low-income neighborhoods, but the qualities that make them effective also renders them invisible because they're too busy solving problems. We have to go in, what we do at the center, like, like a venture capitalist, and a venture capitalist does two things. They bring not only money, but also they bring managerial expertise so that somebody is helping 50 kids today can help 500 tomorrow. So we help grow social enterprises, and they are the source of new knowledge and a source of, of transformation. Uh, Congressman Paul Ryan, uh, asked me, and two years ago, we, we've gone all over the country, and I took him, he wanted to go on uh, a, a listening tour without the press to learn firsthand as a policymaker about these solutions. And we now have produced a, uh, a, uh, a seven-part mini-series that is playing on YouTube and others, but I'd like to show you a four-minute trailer about this adventure that is, we've generated, I guess, in the first two days, 110,000 hits. People are interested because people are more motivated to improve if you show them victories that are possible, not just injuries to be avoided. And I think the American public are desperate for solutions that are inspirational 
that, are, uh, that takes us into a, uh, a different way of addressing old problems. So I'd like to end my presentation with this uh, four-minute trailer. And you can see the whole thing on opportunitylives.org.com or go to our website, cneonline.org. 46218-78237-75216. People are fleeing. There are more deaths in that zip code than in Iraq during the war. We're on the front line of the war. What are you doing out here tonight? I'm working, trying to get money to get my drugs. When was the last time he shot up? Yesterday in the morning. They got one foot in and one foot out, and they're about to go the wrong way. I made a decision in my life. That's where everything happened at. That I would join the Mexican cartel. I committed a crime in 2007 and has followed me here to 2014. As the family goes. You just hurt so bad. So goes the community. So it becomes a warlike environment. That results in chaos, violence, confusion, and poverty. There's a life owls down to a grind, man. And it's a hell of a grind. That's why you gotta have people who remind those in this trap that it's not permanent. And that you have the ability to get out. Nothing is more powerful or credible than a witness. Redemption is being able to look at yourself, do some self-introspection, and say, where I go wrong at? What is it that you are learning from your failures? I don't want to be that person anymore. I don't want to hurt people. I don't want to let people down. What led to that choice that made me go wrong? I thought a man was a hustler, a gangster, a man with kids by different women. That's what I thought a man was because I grew up without a father. And then you got to spend the rest of your life correcting. If I knew stuff I knew now, back then, I'd have went a whole different direction, man. There is a role people must play in their own uplift. If I have to come in here and tie shoestrings and water the plants, as long as I can get a paycheck, I'll yeah. do whatever it is I have to do. When I put a tank in the back of the van, a pressure washer, and went around and started washing cars in the community. Jasper's mobile car wash is taking off. And today I stand here, the largest minority food service company here in the city. We don't believe that folks can rise from the ashes. Life may have knocked you down. The judge said, you a menace to society when these sentence me. But these are Phoenix. You all are stories of hope. You can make a comeback from anything that's holding you down. And now the men are winning. They're getting victory in their lives because they feel like they're somebody. This thing right here changed my life. This life now with him, I can't even describe. I still believe that we have the capacity within our own nation to heal ourselves. But you have to have solutions that work. And the movement has to do with people. If you're going to fight a war, you better recruit some soldiers. The hood heroes are the heroes. They are social enterprises led by grassroots organizations that are very close to the people who have need, which if supported and empowered, can help people who otherwise would be stuck in poverty. Hope keeps you going when you don't have product. See, it's nothing like being hopeful that you can make it, man. That gives you the ability to go places that you never thought you could go. So the question is, what's a life worth to you? What's America worth? What do you think is the answer to poverty? Well, let me show you what I saw. 
I'd like to thank all of the panelists. They did a terrific job of, I think, illustrating one of the key points that, that I find on a daily basis, and that is that, for the most part, government programs addressing the material needs are helping people survive, but we want people to thrive, prosper, and achieve. So with that, let me ask one question um, to all of our, our panelists, and anybody who wants to can, uh, can answer that, is what do you see as the greatest impediment to your, your work or the poverty challenge in terms of government regulations, interventions, or in any aspect of government that really impedes you, the poverty situation that you're trying to work on? Dave, did you, do you want to start? Uh, I know that we had a conversation about um, yeah, that. Yeah, well, I'm a, you know, more of a historian, but I think that the, you know, I'd underline again these issues of the regulatory state. A few years ago, I was doing some research. I was head of the Alabama Civil Rights uh, Advisory Committee to the Civil Rights Commission, and we were looking a lot at the role played by, by eminent domain, including eminent domain through the back door that you often see in poor neighborhoods using nuisance laws and so forth. So. There are a lot of regulations and controls that uh, I think we need to look at more that affect people in poor areas. One thing that I didn't really talk about, but it, it, your introduction was, was perfect, is there's a psychological side here. I mean, at the turn of the century, there was a tremendous stigma. Maybe that had negative aspects as well, but had many positive aspects towards any sort of um, dependence on outsiders, and that would include uh, 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 going in indoor relief, that would include organized private charity, and so forth, and there was not that kind of stigma towards these institutions of reciprocal relief. So what do we say about to somebody today that says, I'm going to avoid any sort of uh, uh, dependence? Do, do we laud that person? Are they a fool? You know. Um, there's a psychological side to this, and there might be intangible benefits, such as one of the things that we see at the turn of the century is tremendous evidence of upward mobility over time. If you look at a moving picture rather than a snapshot approach of, 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 of people and how they move forward. I think one of the biggest barriers is this uh, intellectual elitism. The assumption is um, on the part of funders that untutored people, like you saw in this video, aren't capable of controlling themselves or authoring new solutions. And so funding, unfortunately, has to meet the standard of social science, even though social science hasn't produced any recommendations uh, that have been useful to address these problems. But nevertheless, funders and, and business leaders and others are just enthralled with the notion that somehow if it doesn't have the label or company with social science, it's not valid. But they don't do that in the, in the, in the development of their businesses. <laughs> Did you want, are, yeah. are we good or do you want to? I, I okay, just, all right, and, and let's just keep these a little bit quick so we can get two, two questions yes, from the audience. I'm going to be real quick. In my experience, the biggest part of the problem with government funding is that it's stuck. While I think there's an acceptance that most of the things that it does in the area of poverty don't work, somehow they can't change it. Our success is based on the money we earn in our businesses and the generosity of individuals and philanthropists. 
because it allowed us all these years to experiment. Government, there's no experimenting with anything. They have rules, the rules have failed, the programs have failed, but they constrain us. So that's my answer. Excellent, Harry. Can I say one thing? Of course, I think yes. that um, in terms of, I absolutely agree, I think it's about innovation. And I think for, you know, we have public school teachers who come to teach at Heath after school. And one of the things that they tell us, the reason they enjoy teaching at Heath is because they are not teaching to a test. They are teaching for st to get students to learn and to enjoy learning and building their minds. And so I think one of our impediments is, though we see ourselves as a supplement to the education system, we are truly trying to be innovative with the way that kids are learning today. Great, thank you. Uh, any questions from the audience? The mic is coming your way. <laughs> Good afternoon, Deirdre Harvey. The programs is, seem to be working, especially the Center for Neighborhood Enterprise, and I feel your resentment in that the government programs are not working. This morning we spoke about transferring programs. Can we transfer this successful application to the government Agencies. I know there's 126 programs, but do you have any way to communicate what works to them that they could adopt some of it? Yeah, way, we've already done that. We, we intervene in, in Washington, D.C., where there were 53 gang murders in the five-square-block area. The police were afraid to go in. We trained five neighborhood leaders, ex-offenders, who were knowledgeable about the community. They went, long story short, they went in. They brought the warring factions to our office. We worked out a settlement. And these young men were put to work by the housing authority to clean up the community that they, just, they were destroying, which really transformed it. And the gang deaths went down from 53 to zero for a 12-year period. And we've taken those principles and exported it, refined it, and taken it to Dallas and to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where we're able to go into public schools, 11 of them, and reduce violence by 25% in two, two years. So we know how to take principles. What you do, though, is you import principles, not the exact rules, so that every community has to take some generic principles, and but you apply them locally, which are very unique to that community. But social science doesn't recognize uniqueness because it only rewards standardization. So they resist uh, in any looking at it because, oh, it's not randomized, you, you know. <laughs> you have to do it the same way, the same place all over before we recognize it. And that's the, and that's the difficult. But it is replicable. We can take it to scale. We know how to do it. The challenge is to get people to invest in this unorthodox, unprofessional strategy. Right, and to Bob's point, I think you know, the flip side of your question is, how can we take these outstanding programs and replicate them, continuing to replicate right. them on a private sector approach so we don't fall into the other pitfalls? Uh, is there another question from the audience? Oh, okay, whoever you bring the mic to will be, uh, is that the, our last question, Mike, or can we? Oh, okay, oh, okay, and then. And then. I'm wondering, uh, to what extent, uh, in all of your efforts to uh, 
respond to the poverty problem with private enterprise. To what extent are the government programs and the extensive programs impeding your efforts, impeding the private sector, the nonprofit sector from more creativity in addressing a lot of the problems? I'm not a person that says that all government is bad, nor do I say all private is good. I've seen corrupt, fun, corrupt funded private programs. The challenge is how does government or any other entity operate on tap and not on top? Is if government, we, these young gang members were employed by the local housing authority as an intern to clean up the thing, that's fine but they weren't telling us who, who to hire, how they should be directed. So that I, I, I believe that uh, I'm a radical pragmatist. I just want what works. I don't care if it's government, funding, but if it, if it conforms to uh, uh, principled uh, policies that have the consequence of improving the life for people, I support it. I'm not doctrinaire about that. You know, and I agree that social entrepreneurs are the solution. And yet, is it hard to get government to listen? Absolutely. Absolutely. They, for an unexplainably to me, they are afraid to let go of what exists, whether it works or not. Mm -hmm. I mean, also, the final thing for me and all of these 21,000 people that we've served is somehow people don't believe in people. That we've discounted mm -hmm. this huge group of people, mostly minority, and said they can't really do anything, That's they right. can't work, they can't raise their children, and so we're going to give them money. We're going to give them a check. And of course, that has been proven to impede all progress for people. Yes, I think government is very hard to convince to do anything new or different. That's right. Final question? Oh, final everything. Okay, please join me in thanking our panelists and thank all of you for coming.